Well, hi, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number 16 of the series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. We're talking about false gods that are found within Christianity. There are many of them, and those that worship them all claim the title of being Christian. It was Francis Schaeffer that said, There's an attempt to bring people together organizationally on the basis of Jesus' statement, but there is no real unity because two completely different religions, biblical Christianity and a Christianity which is no Christianity whatsoever, are both involved. And now for something completely different. All characters and what they say in the following recordings, even though they are based on real people and scenarios, are entirely fictional. All voices are impersonated by the person impersonating. It may contain language that is objectionable to the listener and therefore should be not be listened to by those listening. Spilling hot coffee on yourself may cause discomfort or injury. Please ask your doctor if the Called Out Cafe podcast is right for you. I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. He is the God of this planet. I wear secret underwear that protect me. I've given my wife a secret name that only I know. I will use that name to call her over to heaven. I will one day be like God and rule over my own planet. I believe God spoke to the prophet Joseph Smith and gave him additional revelations over what are found in the Bible. I am a Christian. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Used to be everyone around here was. I live in America. I believe all men were created equal and have a God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I believe in the Bible and God and Jesus and all that. I ain't no Allah Akbar yelling raghead. Ain't no money-grubbing Jew. And I ain't no godless mother-fucking I am a Christian. I'm a Christian. I've always gone to church. It's expected of anyone who's to be well thought of in their community. I sit on the church council like my father did, like my grandfather did, and what I expect my son will do. I don't believe in the six-day creation story. I think the Bible is not to be taken literally. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but only like every other human is a child of God. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I've been baptized by the Holy Ghost. I speak in heavenly languages that I've never learned. I believe speaking in tongues is the only way to tell if someone is a true Christian or not. I believe that God does as many miracles today as He did in the early church. If you're not seeing miracles happen around you, you do not have true faith. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I depend on the Holy Roman Catholic Church to tell me what to believe about God. I believe the Pope is the Vicar of Christ, speaking on behalf of God Himself. I believe that the Pope holds the keys to the Kingdom of God, just as the Apostle Peter did. No one gets in that the Pope doesn't want to get in, and he declares who qualifies for being a saint and who will have to spend time in purgatory. I believe I just need to keep the church happy to keep God happy, not to commit any big sins, and it will all be okay. I am a Christian. 
I'm a Christian. At least I'm trying to be. I've read the Bible, well, some of it. I know enough to know Christians aren't supposed to sin. So I try not to cuss, drink alcohol, at least too much, <laughs> or smoke, at least around the kids. Sometimes I volunteer at the local food bank. A few years back, I did the ice bucket challenge. I think I'm a good person and I believe in Jesus. I, I'm a Christian. Hey, who, me? <laughs> sure, I'm a Christian. Being a Christian's important to a girl I'm trying to date. <laughs> sure, I'm a Christian. Now get out of here. I am a Christian. I believe in the Apostolic Creed. I believe that Jesus is God's Son and that He died on a cross and has saved me from my sins. I believe I need to go to church, be baptized, take communion, be well thought of in the community, pay tithes, not sin, have prayer time, do daily devotionals, attend Bible study, attend small group, volunteer to serve at the local mission, go on missions to Mexico, attend weekend gospel retreats, sing in the choir, teach Sunday school, utilize my spiritual gifts, invite people to church, and march for Jesus. I am clearly a Christian. I am Christian. I was born Christian in Serbia. My parents were Christian, had me baptized in Christian Orthodox Church when I was baby. I am not Muslim. I am Christian. I am a Christian. I believe there are many roads to the same God. I believe Jesus is that way for those who are Christian. But the Buddha is the way for others, and Allah the way for many more. Truth is relative and in the eye of the beholder. Jesus taught us it's all about unity and love. That's my truth. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I believe the Bible alone is our spiritual authority. I believe it's through faith alone and Jesus alone, by God's grace alone, that anyone is saved. And it's all to the glory of God alone. My job as a child of God is to know Him. I am a Christian. I'm a Christian. I heard about Jesus years ago when someone invited me to church camp. I guess that's when I got my <laughs> fire insurance and got saved. I go to church when I can and at least drop off my kids there for Sunday school, depending on if they have a soccer game that day or not. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. At least the preacher said I am. I, I told him I agreed that I was a sinner and I believe in Jesus and that I want to be saved from going to hell and I want to have eternal life. Well, he showed me this chart of a bridge and explained how Jesus is the bridge and everything. Then he said a prayer and I repeated the words after him. Uh, he told me that according to the Bible, since I prayed that prayer and I, I believe, I'm now saved and that once you're saved, you're always saved. And he said, don't ever doubt that. And he told me that if there are things in the Bible that I can't believe, that I just need to have faith. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Hey, I'm a Christian. I live in the South, don't I? Yeah, I'm a Christian. When someone tells me that he or she is a Christian, I almost always think, great, but what does that mean? Who are they calling Lord? 
I have no idea which false Christian God they may be worshiping. Today, being labeled a Christian is almost meaningless. For someone I'm not familiar with to use a term, it only means that there may or may not be some sort of affiliation, however strong or weak, with a first century carpenter named Jesus, who they may or may not consider to be the Son of God and Messiah. As to one's religious practices, beliefs about salvation, the sovereignty of God, devotion to Jesus, or beliefs held about who Jesus was or is, the word Christian means nothing more than I assume they are not an atheist or a Muslim or some other religion. I could be labeled as a Christian under this very liberal definition. However, if I base the definition of what a Christian is on most of what's taking place in the name of Christianity today, I have to disassociate myself with the term. Right now, I won't be focusing on how the non-Christian world views Christians and wants to define them. The opinions of the unspiritually reborn about Jesus and how one should follow him are about as valuable to me on that topic as the opinions of the soldiers who placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and nailed him to a cross would be. I also won't be trying to redefine the term Christian as having any more meaning other than how I just illustrated it gets misused. I'm not starting a movement to regain some sort of claim on the term and convince anyone what real Christianity should look like. Whereas the term may have been narrowly defined in the first century A.D., after 1900 years of allowing the cat to drag in everything, it no longer does. So, go ahead, be a Christian, and all that may or may not mean. Like the word Jesus, the term Christianity is not trademarked. Here and now, I am concerned with looking at what it means to be an authentic child of God. The authentic child of God being the term for someone who, according to the Bible, is spiritually reborn into the kingdom of God, not through any human effort, but only through God-given faith in the work that Jesus alone accomplished. The simplest definition of the authentic child of God is that they, from God's perspective, are one who, quote, has the Son, unquote, according to 1 John 5.12. All else who do not have the Son are counterfeits. I hope to demonstrate how authentic children of God make up only a portion of the people within the realm of Christianity. They are not aligned with any one denomination or non-denominational church, but can be found in any of them. One is not physically born into being an authentic child of God, nor does being an authentic child of God have any earthly prestige associated with it. One does not become an authentic child of God for reasons of earthly gain. You cannot work to be qualified to become one, and you cannot pay God back for appointing you to be one. Let's talk about a thespian Christian. You don't have to act like an authentic child of God when you are an authentic child of God. You simply either are one or you are not. Being an authentic child of God is not a religion. It's not 
a lifestyle. It's not an act that you can continue to perfect. It's a divine appointment to a spiritual rebirth and new eternal state of being. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 9, For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The person who is trying to act like or become a Christian is under their own power and using their own wisdom trying to follow the behavioral path that leads to salvation and an improved life that Jesus will provide for them. Attending church and Bible study for the thespian Christian is similar to actors who attend acting school to learn their craft. But whereas actors are trying to learn their craft to convince people they are someone who they are not, the one who is acting like a Christian is, oh wait, they're doing the same thing. The person running the acting school, usually the pastor, is always eager to tell them how to act. Rather than their reborn eternal spirit being intrinsically motivated by the living Holy Spirit within them to carry out the will of God, they build a Christian behavior-based model, which, from the human perspective, appears to be based on living a moral life and doing good, serving the community. The, what I'm calling thespian Christian, the acting Christian, is trying to construct in his or her life something that has come to be thought of as Christianity, but really has nothing to do with being an authentic child of God. As I illustrate in my new book, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus, almost all of what takes place in the church today, or Christendom, or Christianity, is unbiblical and based on 1900 years of accumulative cultural traditions. The motives to fall in line with these traditions may be good, People may want to be, become more moral because they see the obvious reap-what-you-sow benefits of being such a person. They may want to become a more pro-social member of society. They may want to improve their social relationships so they're better thought of. They may want to pay their debt or make up for something they've done in the past or, quote, give back to the community, unquote. Or they may want to avoid eternal damnation and live forever. Certainly nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I want to avoid that. Well, having worked in the correctional system for decades, I am very familiar with the thespian Christian. Claiming to be a Christian is a common manipulation tactic utilized by inmates in the world of corrections. If you're working in the booking area of the jail, it's an everyday occurrence for someone just arrested to have a conversion experience as you're booking them into the jail. If you want to get soul winner <laughs> points in heaven, you might consider becoming a jailer. Well, why do they do this? Because they hope that you'll treat them favorably. Perhaps put in a good word with the person who's going to decide whether to keep them in jail that night or not. It's common for a probationer to get religion and say they're trying to be a Christian, when they're trying to convince people like their probation officer to give them more freedom in the community or allow them to visit their children. 
they think this is what their probation officer, regardless what the probation officer thinks about Christians, wants to hear. The thespian Christian believes that by learning to behave according to acceptable moral principles outlined in the Bible, that they'll be allied with the good side of the battle of good against evil. Demonstrating their allegiance to the good side puts them in right standing with society and with God. This, they believe, will result in many earthly benefits. The path of the thespian Christian includes studying the masters. Paul is to Christian acting what Sir Anthony Hopkins is to secular acting. The benefits of adopting the techniques of Paul gains them the promise of success like Paul had. Regardless of any good intentions they may have, thespian Christians are at their core posers or pretenders. Pretending to be an authentic child of God does not make one an authentic child of God. You can't learn your way into being an authentic child of God. You are appointed one in an instant only because it's the will and desire of God to do so. A supernatural miracle takes place at that time. Imitating or posing as an authentic child of God may in fact gain one personal benefits in this life. There are inherent benefits built into living as a moral, kind, altruistic human being. However, at the end of this life, all posers are promised to hear the words from Jesus, Depart from me, I never knew you. Christians are sensitive about being judgmental. You know, judge not lest you be judged in Matthew 7, 1. That's a scripture that's tossed around the church a lot. As does, before you attempt to take the splinter out of someone else's eye, first remove the log from your own eye. That's in Matthew 7, 1, or 7, 4, excuse me. Christians may also be sensitive to being judgmental because they're often accused of it. In regards to judging non-Christians, many times, very rightfully so. It's not up to Christians, whether they're authentic children of God or not, to judge the people of the world of their sins. That's God's business. Yet, many who say they're Christians seem to attempt to save non-believers one sin at a time. The pious tell non-Christians either directly or indirectly through their actions not to cuss, that they shouldn't drink alcohol, they shouldn't get married to a person of the same sex, have abortions, or have sex outside of marriage, among many, many other things. They expect the spiritually dead to live according to Christian standards when they have no interest in doing so and don't recognize the authority of God. I completely get the motivation for trying to straighten out the immoral behavior of non-Christians. Like one dear brother just told me the other day, he doesn't want to see them burn in hell for their actions. But changing their behavior is not what's going to save anyone. It's only relying totally on Jesus that will save them. Then within the church, judging others is also frowned on. Not necessarily judging when someone is sinning and holding them accountable. That, according to some, is just part of being a good Christian. What's frowned on is judging the legitimacy of someone's spiritual rebirth. 
judging whether someone is an authentic child of God or not. God only truly knows the answer to that question since it's only God that searches the hearts and minds of people. Listen to the words found in Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 9 to 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Besides knowing what's going on inside people's minds, it's God that grants the faith to see authentic truth and believe it. Yet, the Bible gives instruction to us mere mortals on how to judge if someone else is an authentic child of God. Why would that be if one is not to utilize those instructions? There are several good reasons why. Why judge? Well, for very practical reasons, the authentic children of God are not to be unequally yoked to others. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. It says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? An authentic child of God should not be bound to an inauthentic child of God in some sort of relationship, whether it's a romantic, business, or any other type of relationship. The authentic child of God will have as their priority the concerns of his or her master, Jesus, in mind, which could result in regular conflicts with the inauthentic child of God. Naturally, one needs to know who they should yoke or bind oneself to. Secondly, I need to know who I can trust. Trust to have the same ultimate interests in mind. Trust in knowing that the advice given by other people will take into consideration the interests of our common master, Jesus. Trust that they're thinking about life in terms of eternity and not just this present age. Trust that we're approaching life with the same intrinsic motivator, the Holy Spirit. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Well, I need to know who I should allow to teach me and my family about God and give me advice when I need it. In terms of how a body operates, I need to know who I can refer others in the, in the body of Christ to in matters pertaining to the body when something needs to be addressed that is outside of my skill set or outside of my function within the body. I need to support my brothers and sisters in Jesus first as I have resources and others outside of the body of Christ secondly. To do so, well, I need to know who's who. Just because someone's sitting in a pew does not make them a part of the body of Christ. One day, as the early church had to do, or the early ecclesia, and the church of the end of the age will also have to do, if I'm alive during that time, we'll need to know 
who we can trust as authentic children of God around us are being persecuted or even we are being persecuted. Finally, I need to know if I am an authentic child of God. This matter of eternal significance is not to be trifled with. I know that well-intending people will tell those who are questioning their salvation not to do so. They'll say that it's Satan that's bringing about such doubt, trying to rob their joy or distract them. I agree, that may be the case. Satan will attack the authentic child of God in such ways. Satan may be using past or present sin in someone's life to prompt that question, how could you possibly be saved? However, Satan is far from always to blame for doubt about one's salvation. Could it be that it's the Holy Spirit that's prompting one to question their salvation because they have not yet been saved or spiritually reborn and made to be an authentic child of God? It may be that the, quote, belief, unquote, that they hold is not based on authentic truth. They may have repeated a scripted sinner's prayer because of peer pressure or emotion and not understood what was going on or the real meaning behind what they were saying. The person confused about their salvation may believe in Jesus, recited a sinner's prayer, but has never surrendered their will to him. The person questioning their own salvation may not have completely understood the real meaning behind what it means to accept someone as their Lord. Few today know the real meaning of that word in a world where lords are not a normal part of our lives. Knowing someone as your Lord means to accept them as the absolute authority and controller of your life. It's an acceptance that your life no longer belongs to you. You can imagine how seriously you would take that matter if someone knocked on your door tomorrow and made you that offer. Hey, can I be your Lord? Making someone your Lord is a big deal. Am I really willing to do such a thing? Turning control of your life over to someone is a serious matter, and it's not the kind of thing that you'd want to decide like if you were under the influence of some intoxicant and not thinking clearly. Nor is it a small decision to make while under the influence of heavy emotions. Yet emotions are often used as a tool in churches to bring people to the altar. Certainly, God will use one's God-given emotions to draw one to himself. However, for people to intentionally attempt to manipulate someone by playing on their emotions is nothing but a Jedi Christian master mind trick. Anyone may wrestle with doubt from time to time. However, within the authentic child of God, there are internal evidence known only to them. Jesus said for the authentic child of God who holds fast to his word, he and his father will abide with them. You can read about that in John 14, verses 23 to 24. Well, he went on to say in uh, John 14, 26 to 28, the following. This is what he said. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives 
do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. While those who are spiritually lost will continue to search for what it is they're looking for, those who God has found and taken up residence in will experience a peace that does not come from this world, a peace unlike anything the world can produce. Thayer's Greek lexicon describes this kind of peace in this way. It says this, The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot, of whatsoever sort that is. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit of God himself bears witness with our spirit, the spirit of the authentic child of God, that they are truly a child of God. This is from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Frederick Nietzsche, of all people, is credited with the saying, <laughs> quote, Those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. Unquote. Regardless of what Nietzsche's intended meaning might have been, this sentence almost perfectly illustrates how foolish authentic children of God who are indwelled and ministered to by the Holy Spirit appear to be to those who are not. The Holy Spirit allows the authentic child of God to hear the music, which allows them to dance or live their life differently. Others may attempt to dance when they don't hear the music, but it's always an unnatural act for them to pull off. For those who hear the music, the dancing comes naturally. Those who have not been saved by Jesus, or those who can't hear the music, continue to wrestle against God. That wrestling match manifests itself in a lack of spiritual contentment. Romans 8, verses 5 to 7 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The wrestling match against God also shows up in one's life as rebellion against what Jesus said. Whereas an authentic child of God will desire to follow Jesus, those who are in rebellion will not. This is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. to six. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. 
for reasons I'll point out later, we should never judge others by this criteria. It's too easy to fake piety. Only God and I know my motives for following Jesus. Is it because I have a reborn spirit from above and I love Jesus? Or is it for one of many other reasons that I appear to be keeping his commandments? These scriptures that I've read mean so much more than appearing to be a Christian. The counterfeit Christian rebels against Jesus by attempting to be self-righteous, by being proud of their accomplishments that they have done in the name of Jesus, and by thinking that they really are something when they are not. Galatians Chapter 6, verse 3 to 4 even says this, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. One who's questioning their salvation may be doing so because they're not experiencing the out-of-this-world peace that Jesus said his followers would, nor are they experiencing the inherent desire to willingly know Jesus and follow him. It's best that anyone who's questioning their salvation continues to do so until they've worked out the answer. Just like Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Get that question answered. The work that God has given us to do is to believe in him who he sent, and that's Jesus. The Gospel of John provides additional information about what happens if you fail to do that work. This is what it says in chapter 5, verse 38. And you do not have his logos abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. What I translated as the word logos in that verse is normally translated into English as the word word. As we've previously seen, logos means so much more than simply word. When we read word in scripture, we normally associate it with scripture or God's word, the Bible. One may think word only refers to scripture once memorized or have at their disposal. However, logos includes so much more than only the scriptures in the Bible. Logos in the book of John, at least represents the divine expression of who God is, his logic, his reasoning, wisdom, his character, and plans. According to the opening verses of the Gospel of John, Jesus is that Logos who became flesh. To say that if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have the Logos abiding in you, as John 5.38 says, It's to infer that if you do believe in Jesus, that you do have that Logos abiding in you. That is, God's logic, reasoning, wisdom, and character. They all dwell in the authentic child of God. It exists there in the form of God's Holy Spirit. All that being said, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit should only be considered as a part of of the evidence that one is an authentic child of God. There have been many religious zealots in bygone days who have been willing to die for their misbeliefs because of their internal conviction that they believed was true. You know, today, within the religion of Mormonism, 
they describe the uh, the experiencing the Holy Spirit as a burning of the bosom. They feel this conviction and a burning in their bosom. One obvious test of legitimacy is if my beliefs line up with what's in the Bible. For example, if I believe I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, but I also think the answer to my financial problems is robbing banks and swindling little old ladies out of their social security checks, something does not add up right. Well, here's a sobering thought for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. Does Jesus believe in you? What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus knows the hearts of human beings. He knows when the Holy Spirit has been involved in one's authentic belief. He also recognizes misbelief. Beliefs based on things other than authentic truth. Here's a short illustration of this from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name and all it represents, when they saw the miracles that he did. But Jesus did not believe in them, because he knew all. He didn't need anyone to tell him what was in man, because he knew what was in man. Surely the people who witnessed the miracles of Jesus would have said that they believed. Yet Jesus did not believe in their belief. Despite what they thought of as belief in him, he did not trust them. He did not have faith in them. He recognized the shallowness of their belief. So he therefore as the King James Version puts it, did not commit to them. The group in question based their beliefs on witnessing Jesus performing miracles. The text leads us to believe they saw proof of who Jesus is with their very own eyes. Yet, their belief was not authentic. It was not complete. It was temporary. They didn't believe in him in a way that led them to act on their belief. Surely, at least some of the same people who believed after they witnessed the miracles of Jesus stood among the crowd who shouted out to Pilate, Crucify him. What's important regarding salvation is not simply belief. It's if Jesus, who knows what's in the hearts of humans, trusts and declares one's belief to be authentic. Jesus told a parable about several people who were exposed to the gospel and even had an emotional conversion experience. This is what Matthew 13, 3-9 says about that. Then he, Jesus, spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower, a, you know, a farmer, went out to sow, or plant his seeds. As he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Well, Parables are stories used to illustrate a point using symbols 
which are comparable, or they stand for the reality that they represent. The key is to know and understand what the symbols represent. Otherwise, this story about planting seeds sounds like Jesus is just teaching a class on horticulture. If left to our imagination, we could say the symbols represent anything, making money, putting faith to work, finding a spouse, all sorts of stuff. However, Jesus takes the guesswork out of defining the symbols just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. There, Jesus explains four people are exposed to the truth of the gospel. One ends up not understanding the gospel and walks away from it. One receives the gospel, has an enthusiastic conversion experience, but as soon as trouble arises, he endures only for a little while, meaning the seed or belief dies. The third person becomes unfruitful because of the cares of this world. As we know from elsewhere in scripture, the unfruitful are not considered a part of the true vine, Jesus. They are subsequently cast into the fire. The fourth person in the parable is the one who receives the authentic truth of God and understands it. Understanding the word is mentioned in the passage where belief or faith is not directly mentioned. This is because understanding is an essential part of belief, you know, to know and understand. One needs to have knowledge of and understanding of what it is they are believing in or trusting to be true. One needs to understand why they need salvation. One needs to understand what it means when they say something is, or I mean, excuse me, someone is their Lord. Whatever brought about the doubt, if someone is questioning their salvation, they need to satisfy that question by seeking the authentic Jesus who's found in the Bible and have him answer it for them. Here's the answer from Jesus in Luke 11, 9 to 11. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. You do those who are questioning their salvation a disservice by telling them not to worry about their salvation. Even if you are present when you think they got saved, they need to work it out until they know they are known by God and have the Son in them. What about some external tests? Scripture gives clues as to how to discern or judge if others are authentic children of God. Many have their favorite Bible verses that they go to. We'll see how none of them should stand on their own to determine if someone is a real thing or not. Failing some of the tests we'll look at may rule out that someone is an authentic child of God, but passing some of the tests does not necessarily mean that they are an authentic child of God either. The following things can be considered as a part of determining if one is an authentic child of God or not. First, let's talk about the Jesus is Lord test. This is found in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, 
And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Utilizing only this verse in the spirit of the medieval inquisition, one may believe that if they can compel someone to utter the words, Jesus is Lord, any mystery would be removed as to their authenticity. The person is a Christian, since according to the Bible, one can only say Jesus is Lord under the power of the Holy Spirit. There's almost always more meaning lying under a quick read surface of a single Bible verse when it's pulled out of the passage and made to stand on its own. In the case of 1 Corinthians 12.3, to paraphrase and amplify its meaning based on the entirety of Scripture available to us, it might say this, No person can say that the authentic Jesus of the Bible is the Lord and truly mean it in a way they will live according to this confession as an authentic child of God, unless the Holy Spirit has revealed this to them. We know that in the end, Jesus will say he has never known many who have called him Lord. This leaves us with the obvious question, which false Jesus have they been calling Lord? The only confession that counts is only when they mean the authentic Jesus is Lord. If the only test to know if someone were an authentic child of God were to say, Jesus is Lord, we'd have a glaring conflict between two scriptures. What we can conclude is that an authentic child of God is the only one with the Holy Spirit-given ability to say, Jesus is Lord, and mean it as an expression of authentic truth. The test is not whether someone utters the words, Jesus is Lord, Rather, it's if the person's life shows that those words are true. I got to be careful here, though, lest people start applying their favorite good works-based litmus test to what I just said. What I have in mind here is if Jesus is the center of one's universe, is Jesus a sideshow with them or the only show in town? If you talk to them on a personal level for more than 20 minutes about who they are and what motivates them, and Jesus never enters the conversation, I personally would question Jesus being the absolute authority and controller in their life. Is the person's affection set on things above where Jesus dwells, or on the things of this world, their day-to-day problems? Of course, there's a proper time and place to discuss things, like someone's spirituality. But if it's hard to tell if someone is a child of God after you've spent much quality time with them, you may already have your answer. Others might point to the fruits of the Spirit as the definitive test of being an authentic child of God. This is what Galatians 5, 22-23 says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such things there is no law. Well, truly, the authentic child of God will possess every one of these qualities. The problem is, so will many non-Christians and imitation children of God. I have known many loving, joyful, peaceful, long-suffering, gentle, good, meek, temperate people who made no claim to be a Christian. The largest world religions are based on such character traits as these. 
I also know many who possess these qualities and profess a faith in Jesus that I suspect are not authentic children of God, based on other factors evident in their lives. The Galatians 5, 22-23 passage concerning the fruits of the Spirit is preceded by scripture that's about the opposite side of the spectrum, the works of the flesh. Works of the flesh include things like sexual immorality, idolatry, being at odds and contentious with others, jealousy, fits of anger, being divisive, drunk, and taking part in orgies, among other things. What this works of the flesh passage found in Galatians 5, 19-21 does not indicate is that all who are not authentic children of God will engage in these unsavory behaviors. You cannot assume one is an authentic child of God simply because they do not engage in the works of the flesh included on that list. Many non-Christians and those who call themselves Christians but are actually inauthentic children of God are motivated by other means than their religion, which provides them with a sense of right and wrong and a motivation to do good. A moral compass other than comes from the authentic belief in God. Just ask the ancient Greek Stoics and Epicureans. Or ask any ethics expert today about how many different places people get their ethics from. If nothing else, according to what C.S. Lewis called the law of nature, we know every human knows the difference between right and wrong and knows that it's good to do what's right. Just this week, I was on Facebook. One of my Facebook friends is, uh, I, I'm not convinced that they're a believer, I'll put it that way. He was talking about the virtues <laughs> of being an atheist and how their motivations for doing good is pure. He believed, uh, whereas Christians are like, we sign on to uh, some kind of contract to do good because of God expects that, that of us. He says that the atheist naturally does good. They don't have to, but they do good. So here's this guy singing the praises of atheists doing good. Well, that's what C.S. Lewis called the law of nature. We all as humans know the difference between right and wrong, and we know that it's good to do what's right. Well, I once heard a pastor <laughs> using a Christian Jedi mind trick by trying to motivate his congregation to be good and do good works by appealing to their vanity and their fear of death. This is what he said. How do you want to be remembered by people when they talk about you at your funeral? As one who was known for doing good, what will they say about you? That's something to think about. I remember when I heard that, I thought that I have one being in the universe whose opinion I will value when my physical body is dead, and I have great hope in seeing him face to face at that time. Another Christian Jedi mind trick I've witnessed is to use the church's reputation in the community as a motivation for people to behave themselves and demonstrate good fruits. These types of efforts to drive people to display the fruits of the Spirit are poor attempts to imitate the real, intrinsic motivation of an authentic child of God who possesses a reborn, eternal spirit which cohabitates in one's body with the Holy Spirit of the living God.
Then there's what I call the love test. <laughs> love for one another is talked about in Scripture as an indication that one is a disciple of Christ. Listen to this passage from John 13, 34-35. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus was commanding his disciples to love one another. Given the character of Jesus and what Scripture says elsewhere, it's safe to say that he meant this for all of his future disciples and not just the original twelve. Though some expand this Scripture's meaning, this command is specific for Jesus' disciples to love other disciples of Jesus. So often, church has become preoccupied with saving the world that they forget about taking care of and showing love to those inside the body of the Messiah. Jesus said that by showing love in this way, others will know that you are his disciples. The way the King James Version of the Scripture makes it sound is that all men, as in the whole world, will know that you are a disciple of Jesus. That is a poor translation and a poor interpretation. The Greek words genoskopantes is literally translated as all or anyone shall or will know. All or everyone needs to be considered in the context of what's going on in that scripture. Jesus is having an intimate conversation with his disciples about how to treat one another, the other disciples. We should take this passage to mean that any other disciples of Jesus will understand you to be one of them if you are showing them love. This interpretation stands the test of logic where all mankind will recognize you as a disciple does not. How would all men know when I was showing love to my brother or sister in Christ? It seems I'd have to make an open show of it, how unchristlike that would be, and how impersonal, embarrassing, and unloving to the person in need that I was trying to, sh trying to show love to. Nevertheless, love shown to a fellow follower of Jesus is another indication that one may be an authentic child of God. I say, maybe, because again, there are many humans who show great love for others both inside and outside their peer groups. There is no doubt that there are many inauthentic children of God who show real love to others who may be authentic children of God. Some who show love to others are doing so for recognition. Like, sure, I'll contribute money to that family, but I'll send them a check personally. Why? Because they want the family to know who gave them their hard-earned cash. Once they receive the thank you card from the family, surely they have received their reward. You got to be really careful when considering what love looks like within the body of Christ and resist defining exactly what love should look like according to your own personal ideas. Of course, there are obvious things like helping to take care of the physical needs of others when they're unable to or being available for others' emotional needs when they're in crisis. Beyond this, love can take on as many forms as there are people to show it. Jesus spoke the truth in love which did not spare their feelings, but often cut people to their core. Yes, Jesus is God, 
but is it only Jesus that can speak the truth in love? I believe Jesus was acting in love when he called the Pharisees of the temple a bunch of snakes, <laughs> you know, a brood of vipers. It's apparently better to tell it like it is and get someone's attention than to do nothing and allow them to self-destruct. In this way, it was love for both Jesus' father and love for the money changers when he flipped over their tables in the temple. It was love when the rich man asked Jesus what he must do to be saved, and Jesus gave him a task that challenged him to his core. Sell everything you own and give the money to the poor. Because love can be imitated by those who are not in the body of Christ, and because it can sometimes be hard to recognize, it can't be used as the sole litmus test to determine the authenticity of one's relationship to God. Well, there's another test, the results test. What I'm going to read here is often used to illustrate how one who does good works is proof that he or she is an authentic child of God. However, the good fruit in this passage doesn't symbolize good works at all, but rather good results. Where horticulture symbology is concerned, works can be compared to planting or watering, fertilizing, pruning, etc., Living on a small farm with 500 blueberry plants in a small orchard, I know from experience that you can prune, water, and fertilize all you want, but certain plants will still bear bad or even no fruit. It doesn't matter how much work you put into maintaining the plant. Blueberry harvest is only a couple weeks away here. I know that good fruit only comes from good plants. As you're going to hear, there's more to it than this, but the trees in this following parable symbolize two different types of people. Those whose fruit or end results are good represents the authentic child of God. Those that bear bad fruit represent those who are not authentic children of God. This is from Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. The first and most important thing to notice about this passage of Scripture is that it's a warning about false prophets, not about all people in general. It's possible that the principle illustrated by Jesus here is universal and applies to everyone, but there's nothing in context indicating that that's the case. And to make this passage about everyone would be missing his main point. A prophet can mean a foreteller of future events. However, in the New Testament, the word prophet may be more often associated with being a teacher. The Greeks thought of prophets as being those who declare a divine message. And they were thought to be those who interpret the oracles of the gods. In this way, anyone who rightly handles scripture 
which is the word of God and declares what it's contain, what's contained in it, can be rightfully thought of as a prophet. Even more precise than a teacher, since teachers are sometimes parsed out in the New Testament from prophets, is that a prophet could be someone who not only teaches about the things of God, but how to apply those things to one's life and what's going on in the world. Today, the common title for a person who engages in this work is a preacher or a pastor. Preachers take passages of Scripture from God's Word and suggest what you're to do about it. As I stated, there's no indication in Matthew chapter 7 that this passage was meant to apply to anyone other than preachers or prophets. Though you may never hear a preacher say this, the instruction in this passage is primarily meant to help test whether you're sitting under the teaching or preaching of a legitimate, authentic child of God. The passage goes on to warn that although you may have great respect for those who's teaching you, And just because they say Jesus is Lord and even perform what appear to be miracles in his name, it does not mean that they are the real thing. One should be careful about determining what good fruit truly symbolizes in this passage. Is good fruit the size of a church that the preacher leads? A church may grow to be large in numbers under the leadership of a wolf in sheep's clothing. If the wolf is a talented public speaker who's gifted at tickling people's ears with what they want to hear, large congregations are no indication that a church is on the right track. What an evil work it is to teach false doctrine and lead people astray, even with the best of intentions, especially when the pastor can seek and find the truth, but he refuses to do so. Is the amount of good fruit measured in the number of souls saved? Well, that would depend on if the saved did anything more than experience emotions of guilt and repeat a sinner's prayer. Even then, only the Holy Spirit is justified in taking any credit. Does good fruit mean good works in the community? Good works accomplished in the name of Jesus with wrong motivations are not good at all. They're evil. If there's anyone left to thank other than Jesus when the work is done, it's an indication of wrong motivations. Building a church empire can be a very prideful endeavor. A pastor who says, I want this, or my church, to be known for X, has made a dangerous, wolf-like statement. The only answer for that X can be Jesus not service, not miracles, not handing out money to charitable organizations, not great worship services, and not spreading the gospel. Only Jesus. The good fruit of a preacher or prophet would be seen in the lives of authentic children of God who are subject to that preacher, of an ever-deepening understanding of the authentic truth of who Jesus is, God's character, His nature, plans for the universe, and the part That the believer plays in it. Are they depending on their works or completely depending on Jesus to work through them? Are the people sitting under the preacher religiously painting by the numbers or is the master artist Jesus painting through them? There are many sermons that are based on this following passage I'm going to read to you. 
where Jesus symbolizes himself as a vine and his true followers are the branches. This is a common sermon. The last time I heard it, the preacher giving the sermon, like countless preachers before him, was attempting to motivate people to do good works. He was doing so by saying that if you're really grafted into the true vine, which is Jesus, there will be evidence of this in your life because of the good works that you will do. He stressed the importance of other people seeing these good works as if their vote would count as to whether the person is a legitimate Christian or not. Let's see if that's really what's going on here. This is found in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Here's what it says. I... Jesus, am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The point of this passage of Scripture is not to motivate people to do good works, nor is its primary point to provide any kind of method for testing whether one is an authentic child of God or not. Jesus didn't speak these words to encourage or coerce anyone to do anything there isn't the slightest mention of doing good works or deeds at all. Good works are only assumed to be what's symbolized by the fruit that will come forth when one's grafted into Jesus, the true vine. Also nowhere in this passage does it say where the fruit comes from will be evident to anyone other than the vine dresser, you know, God the Father. It says there will be much fruit it doesn't say what the fruit is or whether anyone besides the vine dresser will associate the fruit with any certain branch which comes off the vine. When you go to the market to buy grapes, are you aware of the branch that the fruit came from? It's impossible to know. And why would you care? The only one who would care about such things is one who takes care of the vine, the vine dresser, which symbolizes God. If you're buying the fruit or eating the fruit, chances are you don't care about the branch or the vine it came from. It's very likely you aren't even aware of the farmer who takes care of the vines. Well, God is the vine dresser that cares about what's going on with the vine. He is concerned about who is grafted into the vine, representing his son, Jesus. The fruit is righteousness. Not righteous acts or works. Righteousness, not that comes from any efforts of the branch. The fruit of righteousness 
is passed through the branch from the vine, who is Jesus. It is only Jesus' righteousness that is considered good. This passage is not about doing good works that are noticed by others. It's about assurance. Assurance that if you abide in Jesus, He will accomplish His will through you. Abide means what it sounds like. To dwell, remain, endure, continue, be present, or to tarry. It means to do nothing other than to hang out like a bunch of grapes. To greatly paraphrase and sum up the message here, Jesus was saying, don't sweat it. If you're legit, just be in me and I will carry out my will through you. Jesus points out that there is nothing you can do on your own to bear his authentic fruit. Even abiding in him is only possible through him. The great news in this passage is that it's not for you to worry about saving the world, what your mission is, what your gifts are, and how you should be using them, showing others love and serving them. No, the great news is that your job is to abide or remain or dwell in Jesus, the vine, and be assured that he is using you and bearing much fruit, his own righteousness. God's will in the lives of the authentic children of God can take on too many forms to try and articulate. What we need to be careful about is trying to put his will, what we're calling fruit, in a box, a fruit box. (laughs) God makes everything good from his perspective out of circumstances that mere mortals may consider to be tragic, sad, and awful. Those authentic children of God who are aligned with God's perspective may not always see the good in what God is doing in the world, but they trust that He is accomplishing good even when others cannot. Romans 8 verse 28 says this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Beware of those who try and limit what they're calling fruit to what's contained in their personal finite list of good works, and then attempt to judge others according to their list. Their good works may sound so pious, who could argue against them? Serving in the nursery, serving on the worship team, teaching Sunday school, serving food at the mission, giving your money, talking to students on the university campus about the gospel, mission trips to India. These are the ways in which one really serves Jesus, right? Two different people can be serving side by side, performing identical functions. And because of their motivations, one may be serving his or herself, and the other is acting as a tool in the hand of Jesus, as Jesus serves others through him or her. This may be impossible for any human to judge especially since the one serving with pure motivations may be trying to go unnoticed or may even appear to be less Christian-y than the one serving out of a motivation of guilt or peer pressure, cultural tradition, or wanting to like earn points to impress God. So, where does this leave us? Well, we can know that 
some of these passages of Scripture that I've talked about cannot solely be relied upon to determine if someone is an authentic child of God or not. But we can know some things according to these passages. Like, anyone may say Jesus is their Lord. However, only an authentic child of God can truly mean it. This means that words mean little. Actions are the test. Not actions of what I may think of as good works, but the action of Jesus being the center of the authentic child of God's universe. Jesus is not a sideshow to them. He is their identity. If you know the person very well, and this is not apparent, you probably have your answer. Secondly, an authentic child of God will show love to other disciples of Jesus. Yet others may also show love, and an authentic child of God may, through their sin, may fail to show love from time to time. What we can conclude is that an authentic child of God, unless they have slipped into sin, will not show hatred towards other authentic disciples of Christ. Next, an authentic child of God will display the fruits of the Spirit. Those fruits of the Spirit, a response to authentic belief, might be thought of as authentic works. But again, others may exhibit look-alike fruits. What we would expect from authentic children of God is that they would not regularly engage in the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit, the works of the flesh. However, when an authentic child of God does engage in works of the flesh, because everyone does, we would expect that they would be repentant of such behavior, want to turn around and go the other way and be sorry for what they did, not adopt it as a part of their regular life. So, how do we eliminate the posers? What is it that sets an authentic child of God apart from the thespian Christian, the one who is only acting like a Christian, as sincere as the act may be? Well, the final test. An authentic child of God is in love with the authentic truth. The authentic truth resonates with the Holy Spirit that indwells them. They will adopt authentic beliefs in the authentic Jesus. It's the authentic Jesus of truth that they profess and follow. Their beliefs today may not all line up 100% with the authentic truth, but their desire and commitment is that one day they will. God is real and Jesus is alive to the authentic child of God. God is their main thing in life and not a sideshow. They long to see Jesus and await his return with expectancy. Like the children of Israel in the Old Testament who were instructed to destroy their pagan idols, the Asherah poles, and tear down the high places where Baal was worshipped, when the authentic child of God discovers they have given quarter to a false god in their life, they will gladly destroy it. Well, that's all I have for you for now. In the next episode, I want to talk about whose problem all this is and what might be done about it. For now, thanks for listening. May God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. 
Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.